I think the big challenge for most people is that we get our identity from what we do and how well we do it. And so the minute that stuff starts diminishing, we, we cannot but help feel that there's something wrong with who we are. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we hear stories of adventure from every corner of the planet. We interview all sorts of folks who are using their sport to explore the world around them and give you the inspiration you need to get out there and have some fun. First of all, I want to wish all the mothers out there happy Mother's Day. I know it's a day late, but uh, you know, every Mother's Day I think about the time when I was uh, pl- first started playing basketball and I wanted to quit because I was so intimidated. I had never played, I was terrible, and uh, I was young, you know, in like middle school or something. I wanted to quit the team and my mom wouldn't let me. And uh, just no matter what I did, she would not let me quit the team. Well, I ended up falling in love with the game, uh, played a little bit in college, and uh, ended up, um, yeah, being a huge passion of mine to this day. And that lesson has taught me so much. It kept me going through all my bike trips, through all my uh, adventures. And so, Mom, thank you for that. Again, I know you hear this story probably every year, but it truly changed my life not letting me... uh, quit something just because I wanted to. And so, you know, actually that lesson of not letting your feelings dictate your decisions is something we talk a lot about in this episode um, with Alex Harris. And I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Uh, Alex is one of my biggest inspirations. He, along with um, Alistair Humphreys and Rolf Potts, the author, all three were very influential in my early uh, college days when I first started discovering this world of adventure, this world of exploration and, and races and stuff like that. And and so I was reading all these people at the same time and found Alex in a book at my school's bookstore and reached out to him through email. And uh, he replied back. This was probably 2008. And yeah, it was just really cool to, to hear his story. And uh, for him to respond, it just made my day. I remember that was pretty awesome. And so I kind of just been following the guy ever since. And, and what I love about Alex, he is, uh, we're not going a ton into his background, but he he's one of those people, the longer you talk to him, the more stories pop up. He, uh, he left his sales position in 1996, a job he hated. He was 25 years old and decided to guide an, a team up Everest which uh, he would made him the youngest person to ever do so or the youngest African to ever do so. It's actually hard to get some of the details just because he doesn't have his stuff plastered all over the internet and all over social media. He's not big on that stuff. And, and in a lot of ways, that makes me like him even more just because, uh, you know, it's it, it just more interesting the longer you talk to him, honestly. But we, we go a little bit into his background. Um, he, he did end up climbing the seven summits after that successful Everest uh, expedition. And if you remember that, that was the year that there was that tragic um, accident on the south side. He and his team were on the north side at the time, so it was um, kind of he, he's just criss, crisscrossed a lot in the adventure world for the last couple decades, and uh, he's definitely um, d- quite accomplished in a lot of the things he's done. But like I said, he's guided on the seven summits. He is the first African to go unsupported to the South Pole. And he uh, has crossed the Arabian Desert on foot. He's done a lot of different things. And I actually ended up meeting him on the Tour Divide, which I talk about a lot here. And uh, it was just really cool to meet him. 
my best friend, Paul, who was always also very influential to his story. And we're going to talk mostly in this episode about that kind of side of things, the, the bike touring side, because after he got out of the, the mountaineering guiding world because of just the danger aspect of it and having four children himself, he was like, this, you know, it's just, just not worth it anymore. Uh, he moved into race directing, and now he's actually directing something called the Munga, which is a thousand kilometer kind of semi-supported single stage mountain bike race, uh, which goes clear across South Africa. It's every December. And yeah, I remember when he launched it, it was a million dollars grand prize. So it was pretty eye popping and pretty eye catching for a lot of folks to race. And so we're going to talk about the experience of starting that up, how it kind of failed initially, but he was able to piece together what it is now. And they've had four or five successful years now and growing every year. So it's pretty cool to be a part of. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about the Munga, it's in the show notes. I'd love to go over there and race it one day. I'm, I'm planning on it at some point, but uh, there's just a lot to his story. He's filled with wisdom. Um, just, just a really smart, really thoughtful dude. Uh, he, he's a, he's a faithful man. And so, you know, his, his spirituality and his faith definitely guides a lot of his decisions and his, uh, his, his worldview. So it's pretty interesting to talk to. And, uh, just, you know, I know this intro has been kind of long, but I wanted to do it justice and just be very clear that Alex is, uh, it, it was a huge pleasure to finally get him on. I've been asking for a few years now. So Alex, thanks for jumping on with me. And, uh, yeah, this is about three minutes longer than any other intro I do, so apologize for that. But anyway, here is the episode. All right, folks, well, welcome to today's show. Uh, we've got, honestly, someone that inspired me from way back when, uh, Alex Harris. Um, Alex, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Mason. Good to be here. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I want to ask, you know, where you're coming from and all that, but I do want to say how I found out about you. I was at my college bookstore, and uh, it, there was a book called Surrendered and Untamed by Mark Batterson, and there was this picture of this tin on the front, like a, a, pol like a polar exploration-looking scene, and I picked it up, and I, and I read into the book and read your story and, and your uh, South Pole expedition, and I was just totally hooked at that point, and I was planning my first big adventure then, and uh, so that was my intro to you, I think in 2008 or 2009, and uh, yeah, I've kind of been a fan of you ever since. Well, that's great to hear. Thanks for letting me know. I'm going to have to pop uh, Mark a mail and uh, check up on that royalty check eh, for that picture. <laughs> <laughs> that's Just awesome, kidding. Man. That's awesome. So, so, you know, where are you coming from today? Where's home for you? Well, I'm sitting in a leafy suburb on the west side of Johannesburg in South Africa. And this has been pretty much my home for the better part of almost 49 years, believe it or not. Wow. And and now is that a particularly adventurous place? I mean, did you grow up there too, or, or did you move there once you became an adult? No, look, I've spent my entire life here and it's uh, on the list of the top hundred adventurous places in South Africa. I, I'm not sure Johannesburg makes it. There's uh it's just not historically, it's a gold mining city and it's inland and there's no mountains, but you know, when you've got a life where you, you call to all these faraway continents, uh, 
it's not that important that your home is also adventurous, I guess, eh? That's a good point. And yeah, and folks have heard, you know, in the intro that I'll re- record after this that, yeah, you've done expeditions literally all over the world. The Seven Summits, um, gosh, just, I mean, a, a million things you've done all over the, the entire planet. This, so, so for you, you know, growing up there, what what kind of planted those seeds of adventure for you if, if, you know, it isn't particularly in the culture there? Yeah, that's a good question because it not not only is it not in the in the city culture, but it certainly wasn't part of my folks culture. You know, my my dad worked on the mines. So, you know, Johannesburg is is known for its gold mines, and so he just worked his whole life. Uh, really, never saw much of him in the day, and very little time or energy to do stuff in on the weekends. So. My folks had no outdoor adventurous interest. And, you know, I've got to say it was probably the Lord that put the seeds of exploration in me because there's no question as a kid I, I used to climb over the, the walls and the roofs of the neighborhood uh, as much as I could. But it was only towards the end of school that I started hiking, heard about the mountain club. I mean, I grew up in Scouts, uh, you know, so we went to Boy Scouts and we used to go on these night hikes. Janusburg's got a few what we call copies, which are these small little hills dotted around. It's quite a rocky place. I guess it looks a little bit like Austin, um, you know, with, with sort of al- altitude and, and some leafy hills and forests, but uh, nothing to nothing big. So it was just those last couple of years of school, hearing about the mountain club joining them, starting to hike, starting to rock climb. And really that was kind of the first time that I saw, wow, you know, there, there is a, there's a world of adventure. And I've been locked in the city for 14, 15 years and, and hidden from it. So it was like a big, a, a big uh, Christmas present, eh? Oh, that's interesting. And I, I, that's a good comparison to Austin, Texas and Hill Country. It has those kind of lower mountain um, sports you can do, whitewater rafting seasonally, just, li- you know, forest, a lot of forest, but not those big yeah. mountaineering experiences. So, so, you know, doing scouts, you know, going out with them and seeing this world out there, was was there some experience you did on your own at some point when you, when you had, when you're old enough or did it just, how did it progress into what you do now? Well, Sure. Let me think of a short way to answer uh, a complex question. That <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a big question. 40 for years sure. of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, was there a big first overnight you did on your own or like, mom and dad, I'm, I'm biking to Cape Town or something like that? I don't know. You know, I remember in that last year or two of school, we had a friend who had a farm in a place called Walkerville, which was a suburb maybe 30 kilometers outside of Johannesburg. So what's that, 18, 20 miles? Not not really that far. And we decided to ride bikes there. Now, no, none of us had ever ridden further than around the block on BMXs. So the idea of riding 10 hours was just like this way out, and, and we survived. I mean, we somehow survived that weekend. We rode out there, we rode back. Now when I look back after having done stuff like the Tour Divide and riding 200 miles on a mountain bike in a day, I look back and I think, my goodness me, we were so pitiful. Our our expectation of ourselves was so pitiful. But, you know, we got back from that and I realized, wow, I mean, we we, we – on our own power, broadened our horizon, pushed outside of the city limits. And 
it was really the that next year I started hiking with the mountain club in my final year, but that next year going to faraway places within the, the ambit of South Africa, camping in the mountains and learning the the skills of being self-sufficient. Remember my my goal as a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, I'm sure a lot of American kids want to be astronauts, but I don't think there's a lot of South African kids who want to be astronauts. That was my goal. And uh, actually, I first let me back up. I first wanted to be a Jedi Knight, but I think the only way my brain could articulate that in a in a in a systematic plan was to be an astronaut. And to do that, I had to join the U.S. Air Force and be a pilot. So in my mind, I left school knowing I had to join the South African Air Force, learn how to fly. And so I had a break of about a year before I entered the Air Force after school. And in that year, I spent a lot of time climbing as much as I can. Cut a long story short, I entered the Air Force in 1991. And remember, this is the end of an era in South Africa where the old apartheid dispensation was coming to an end. And as we headed for our first free election in 1994, with Mandela being released, there was a lot of uncertainty in the country. And so one of the ways that manifested was our, our military scaled down. And so I was in the Air Force waiting to learn how to fly, and it was just postponed and postponed and postponed, and one squadron after another was grounded. And so as the old dispensation was dying, the military was changing significantly, and I kind of... I was a bit disillusioned. Uh, I, you know, I left the Air Force not willing to sign on short service for five years, not knowing whether flight training would be started again. And so as this dream of becoming an astronaut was kind of coming to an end, my life in the mountains was slowly picking up by spending more and more time abroad. And so that's probably the, the key period in my life, that sort of 91, 92 uh, Air Force year co coming to an end and, and sort of the change in dispensation in South Africa as I was becoming a young adult. Did, did you know, with, with all this uncertainty with that time, you know, what was going through your head about what you should do? You know what I mean? Like, like it seemed like the the direction of the Air Force it was all this uncertainty in the country, and maybe the funding behind the Air Force. And did you start to daydream about what you, else you wanted to do or explore other other avenues? You know, it's interesting because I I think I joined the Air Force at about nineteen, and at the time they had just changed our national conscription from uh, obligatory. Uh, you know, it used to be mandatory, and so it was two years, and now it was one year, and then after my tenure, it would be done away with altogether. But in that period, 1920, I remember leaving thinking, okay, I've got technically till I'm 25. That was the age that the maximum age you could sign on and learn to fly in the Air Force, and the minimum requirement was 10 years. And so every year on my birthday, as I was climbing more and more, I remember being really conscious about you know, what's going on and, 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 and not being 100% sure. And to make matters worse, my, uh, worse my, my father died in 1994. So right in the middle of that when kind of I, I probably most needed a father figure to help me figure out some of these key decisions, boof, he was out of the picture, you know. So wow. I think for a period of, yeah, you know, a couple of years, I was really distracted. And then that window had passed and uh, I was now past 25 and I had become established in the mountain club. I'd been invited on some expeditions abroad by various international mountaineering. And, and I'd really just settled into a career of sales as, as a mechanism to fund my expeditions, you know. And, you know, it's, uh, Mason, it's a funny thing because 
I often think back to that and it's a temptation to think that, uh, wow, you know, what a squandered, what could have happened and the what ifs, but you really got to be firm in your mind that God's got a plan for you and he works all these things for the good. You've you got to just keep the course, you know. And so I look back at that period and I think, yeah, maybe my life may have taken a different path. But the path that it did take, I, I think I've been incredibly privileged and, and, and really just lived an exciting and, and um, you know, an abundant life thus far. Wow. There, I mean, there's so much that I didn't know even after doing research and – so I really appreciate you telling that those stories and just you know what it was like and, and you know what what led you to jump head first into this career because by no means is is it is it an easy path to take and I knew you were in sales for a while and you know what 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 was kind of the the, the thing that led you to say I'm going to take this entirely different path in life that has a probably very low likelihood of succeeding but I'm going to go for it Yes, yeah, so that was a, a particular hill in the Himalayas with an elevation above sea level of 29,028 feet. That's more commonly called Mount Everest. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what had happened was in the, in the mid-90s, so in about 95, I got invited. So I, I joined the Mountain Club in sort of the late 80s, early 90s, and Something that was really just good timing and, and no skillful decision on my part, 1991, 1992 was Perestroika and Glasnost and the Soviet Union coming to an end. And one of the, uh, one of the manifestations out of that was an opening of their capacity to invite foreigners. And so the Mountain Club of South Africa received this flood of invitations from various uh, former Soviet uh, Federation clubs inviting us. And so I was a young up-and-coming climber in the club and I got invited on, on in successive years, 92, 93, 94, to go to various parts of what was then the former Soviet Union in the, in the change. And you know? so the Palmiers, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, the Altai on the border of Mongolia, the Caucasus, of course, where Albus was. And so very quickly got into some situations that were way beyond my my ability to handle or depth, but learnt an awful amount. Fast forward a few years, it's 1995, I get invited by a South African expedition that's going to Everest as a young up-and-coming climber. Uh, our, our mountain club was, uh, it's, it's kind of structured in, in sort of uh, like your equivalent of the state's uh, ours is a provincial level, these various sort of provincial federated uh, clubs. And I joined this this group. Yeah, we're going to the north side of Everest next year. Little do we know what 1996 on Everest is going to be like. And towards the end of 95, all of a sudden, the guy who's leading this trip can't lead it anymore. And he, he pulls out. And so we're sitting around a table and everyone looks at me and they're like, okay, well, you leading the trip. Now, I was 24 at the time. What were you thinking? I mean, that that's young. Well, my brain hadn't kicked in yet. I mean, my 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 knee jerk reaction was awesome. We're going to Everest, and wow. we so we had this permit. The permit was for the north side, and in the 1995, all of a sudden, around the mirror in South Africa, on the front page was this expedition that was sponsored by the Sunday Times, which is one of our major newspapers, and it was led by a guy called Ian Woodle, who was a British guy at the time. 
And to cut a long story short, this would be the infamous South African team that got caught up in all that ruckus on the 8th of May on the south side in that fateful storm in 1996. And so here we are with our permit to go to Everest in the post-monsoon, incidentally, which was only September, October, August, September, October, 96. But we see that this major funded South African expedition is going four months before us. Now, our whole drive was being the first South African. So we realized from the start, we're going to be, we're going to have a real hassle finding sponsors. And as January and February kicked off and this big expedition uh, sponsored by the Sunday Times was gearing up, we tried to join them. We tried to maybe uh, become backup climbers. We tried everything because we knew we really going to have a tough, a tough ask trying to raise money. And then the expedition started. And of course, that 1996 pre-monsoon season got underway. And from the start, the South African expedition was highly controversial. They fired the doctor. The three lead climbers all resigned. Uh, Ian Woodle got into a fisticuff with a representative of their title sponsor at base camp. One of the ladies, the black woman on the team, it it turned out was really there as sort of a window dressing exercise because she wasn't on the permit and a whole lot of stuff was going pear-shaped. And, you know, we had by that stage, our team decided, well, we're going to go to Cho'oyu, one of the 8,000ers near Everest. And we saw how this was unfolding and we just felt this real sense of duty to our country that, you know, what we're going to go to the north side of Everest simply because we think irrespective of whether they succeed or not, They've really cocked us up. And, I mean, I guess there was a bit of arrogance there, but there was genuinely a feeling that we were climbers, mountaineers, and the country deserved a better experience than what was given them from this expedition. I was still involved in sales, and my boss at the time was giving me more and more leave every year, and I was spending all my money climbing mountains. But I knew in January '96 it was a turning point, and I resigned because I knew if I'm going to, raise the money that's going on to go in September. This is going to be a full-time effort. And so off we go to Everest in September. We spent 52 days on the north side. Uh, that's where I got saved, incidentally. But we didn't get to the summit. We had no Sherpas. We had no oxygen. I mean, we, we just got our butts kicked big time. We got um, unemployed, broke to choose this career. The career kind of chose me at that moment out of absolute necessity. We had nothing uh, to do except maybe try and find a way to get South Africans up Kilimanjaro. We had the logistical expertise and we had credibility. Interestingly, it seemed that surviving Everest in 96 without Sherpas and oxygen gave us some kind of credibility. And so the idea to turn our passion into a business was born, partly because we had no choice. We needed to do something for money. Remember, 94 opened up the, the, the world for South Africa. We were now seen as the flavor of the month. A lot of South Africans were thinking about going to Tanzania to climb Kilimanjaro, which we were forbidden to enter before. And so, again, you look back and you realize it was almost a perfect storm of these odd circumstances and events that conspired right then and there. And I really had no choice, you know, but to embrace what lay ahead of me. I had no choice but to chase a life of adventure, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, wow. There's so much to this, man. There's there's so much going on. And you, you, so you're, young, you're this young, you've summited Everest, led a team up Everest, and 
you, you, you're off to the races. You've mentioned a handful of times about sponsorship. Uh, w- was that surprising to you, the business side of exploration and um, adventures and, and just the marketability of it? I, I've heard you're just very good at that, and that's one reason you've, you've been so successful. Is that something that caught you off guard or just something that's come naturally, coming from a background of sales? Look, it's yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's no question. The the type of sales I was involved in was, I, I worked for a, a, a British company. It was an international company, and they basically sold executive entertainment for high profile sporting events. So private, uh, you know, like the rugby sevens, the World Cup final, uh, these private little chalets with a guest speaker. And so the type of people that would buy that would be decision makers and CEOs. And so there's no question doing that for a living would, would certainly sow the seeds of being able to convince people, one, and get hold of the right people, too, when the time came. But interestingly, when we started the business in 96, or the iteration that was then the business, there were two mechanisms. We still, myself and my partner at the time, had only climbed three of the seven summits. So we were still trying to become the first Africans to climb all seven. But some of the seven had never been climbed by any any South African. And so we offered these commercially. So we took the first South African to Mount Vincent in Antarctica. We took the first South African up Karsten's Pyramid in Irian Jai, Indonesia. And, you know, it was almost the golden years of that time because that's an opportunity you can only offer a client once. You can only say to a client, I'm going to give you the opportunity to be the first South African to climb this mountain. Once that opportunity is passed, it's gone. And so we balanced these two sort of modus operandi. One was to find clients to pay for our expedition to climb the seven we still needed to climb and that they needed to climb in joint expeditions. And then some of the stuff like the South Pole and supported uh, certainly the expedition to Everest, we had to find sponsors where there just wasn't a, a way we could get clients to pay for us to climb Everest because we weren't yet in the, in the league or nearly as experienced enough. And, you know, it was interesting how you approached those uh, those two sort of MOs very differently, but still using the kind of same set of skills. And, and really what's transpired when I look back now, probably the single most important characteristic, I think, is, is integrity, that some of our clients have over the years become good friends still today. When I think back to the late 90s, taking these guys up, Vincent in Antarctica and Urian Giant in the year 2000, they're still good friends. And, and this is, you know, it's, it's 20 years later. And the reason is because you're in an environment where it's, it's, it's a crux environment. You, you have to pay attention. Your lives are intricately linked and you, you develop a bond. And if your intention from the start has always been authentic and you've been upfront and honest about why you're doing things, some of these guys tend to be friends. And so, you know, your personal brand becomes incredibly important. And it's not something I think you get another opportunity to to build. You've got one shot at building your brand. And so, you know, I've been fortunate. I mean, I, I guess the Lord's put me with the right people at the right time, made mistakes early on when we were young, survived some of them. And I think back to those early 90s. Wow. I mean, there were a handful of times you know, I almost uh, ended this physical life, but didn't. And yeah, we are uh, 
many years later. I can only imagine how many things you look back on and say, wow, we, we narrowly, narrowly escaped that. I, I feel like every everyone that's had a, a career in this has, has said that a number of handful of situations they can look back on, myself included. And it's, you know, if one thing goes wrong in those situations, it, we wouldn't be talking here today. So uh, that, that's absolutely incredible. So, so what would you say was one, you know, along this journey, you start guiding and you, you make a career out of that. What was one of your biggest, maybe setbacks or biggest obstacles to overcome in the last, you know, 20 years you've been doing this? Sure. That's a good, uh, a good question. I would have to say it's, I'd say it's a crisis of confidence. And to put that in context, I, I, I'm at a point in my journey now where I know I have to let go of the past and my future doesn't hold uh, nearly as much of my time and energy in this brand that we've spent most of our life building. So, and, and that's where this mountain bike race that we've created called the Munger comes in. You know, and so what I mean is, like, in the last three, four years, I've really had the sense that the Lord's saying, look, I know you've put 30 years of your life into this thing, but this is not where I'm taking you. You need to let this thing go. And so, you know, in the last two years, standing on the summit of Aconcagua, where it's been maybe 10 degrees centigrade, taking our hands out of our gloves for half an hour in the late afternoon sun, and just realizing I, I'm going to have to let this go, you know, this, this, this thing that I think is the only thing I know how to do, you know, for the last, for as long as I can remember, my wife's been telling me to go and get a normal nine to five job. And my response is, well, I wouldn't know what to do. You know, this is what I know how to do. And now I suddenly find myself as a race director with a brand that I think has got huge potential. And I'm convinced the Lord wants me to head towards. And that means letting go of everything. And so it's this, and, and so that, that term I use, this crisis of confidence, is it's it's because I'm I'm having to let go of everything I know, and start a new life with something that I know very little about. That is uh, that is absolutely fascinating to say the least. You know, from the outside, I'm sure you know a crisis is not fun to go through <laughs> by any means. But I think a yeah. lot of people right now, especially, are facing something like that. They say. Oh my! Oh my goodness! Like life is different now. Where I'm being forced into this quarantine, essentially. What do I want to change? What do I absolutely have no choice about changing? And there's going to be a before and after with this situation for a lot of folks. So I think it's definitely applicable. You, you know, I, I just so folks know, you have a, a background of. Um, you know, guiding these huge mountaineering experiences, but also bikepacking. I met you uh, on the Tour Divide in 2013, which is the 2,700-mile bike race across the U.S. along the Continental Divide. Folks have heard me talk about it quite a bit, but so you, you had a history of racing those as well and winning a lot of those. Um, you know, wh what has it been like for you transitioning from that, the person doing these to someone directing an event like this and you know, I, I, obviously that's a whole new set of skills, but in a new frontier in a lot of ways, what has that transition been like to you? Is it something that you've enjoyed, something that you've found as fulfilling? How is it different? 
Yeah, it's been fascinating. And I think it's partly been, uh, you know, let me step back. I remember sitting in an office when we were about to launch. In fact, we'd launched our first event, but we were about to cancel it because it's a long story, but our, our sponsor had pulled out and the rand, the currencies was devaluing, but I had spread out on my floor a whole lot of 1 in 50,000 topographic maps. I had just come back from the Karoo, so I'd spent time on my bike. I was making phone calls to CEOs trying to raise money at the last minute, and right there in that moment, I got a sense of my perfect, my perfect job. It had elements of every aspect that I loved, exploration, the networking, the closing the deal, the selling, uh, the strategic element of it. And the race came about because of time I'd spent on stuff like the Tour Divide, on stuff like Freedom Challenge in South Africa, where I had spent intense, and you know what it's like, but for, for, for guys who don't know what it's like, a race like the Tour Divide, if you're racing, if you're on the sharp end, you are on your bike 18 hours a day, you're sleeping three hours a night, and you're doing that for two weeks, 15, 16 days. That's a lot of time to think about stuff. And to have <laughs> say the least, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you know, seeds that are sown can suddenly germinate, and ideas can work their way. And so, a lot of people have said, "Wow, you know, the manga is such an amazing idea." You know, how did how did you or format? It's not one moment. You don't wake up uh, with a perfect idea in your head. You wake up with the semblance of something, with the hint of a destination with the, the kind of slightest wisps of journey and it's filled with the stuff that makes you up, the things that are part of your DNA. And, and if that's excellence and perseverance and resilience, then that's kind of the makeup of this, this thing that one day evolves into a great idea. But to get there, you've got to try stuff. You've got to fail. I mean, I think of our, our race that first year, I, you know, the day we, the day before we, we called off and listen, our race made headlines around the world. We had a million dollars. We were going to offer a million dollar prize money. We had a bank guarantee from our sponsor for 1 million US dollars. In retrospect, there was a whole lot that was naive about our thinking and we were ahead of the curve. But nonetheless, there we are. It's 2014. Our rand is tanking and our sponsor does a U-turn and I now have to call the race off. And the day before we publicly announced it, I made 100 phone calls to riders all around the world. It was probably one of the hardest days in my professional career. And I had to tell every one of those guys who had been dreaming about chasing a million dollars of prize money, I had to tell them that the race is off. It's not going to happen. I mean, it was heartbreaking. It was absolutely heartbreaking. And we made the decision to come clean. We sent out a press release, and we were totally honest. We said, listen, guys, we've lost our sponsor. And while we may have enough money from our entries by the time the race happens to get that prize money, we can't in good conscience put on a race uh, not being certain about it. And, and we called it off. And we went back to the drawing board a year past. Everyone said to us, we love the idea of the format. We're not interested in the prize money. Just put the race on. And so we did with small prize money in 2015. And here we are with five races behind us, you know, so it's, it's crazy. We survived because we were honest. Did it give you doubts at that point about the idea? And, and also when you answer that, could you, could you explain what the Mung is to people for, for folks uh, that don't know? So it's a nonstop 
or semi-supported mountain bike race. It's a thousand kilometers, so that's about seven hundred odd miles. But riders have only got five days, 120 hours to complete it. It starts in Bloemfontein, a town in central South Africa, and it heads across the semi-arid desert called the Karoo, the most isolated and hottest part of our country. It's in December, our summer. Temperatures are 50 degrees. What's that? 130 Fahrenheit. And we set up five race villages where riders can sleep and eat and shower, but they don't have to stop. It's up to them. And so it's a highly compelling format, but it's incredibly tough. And obviously toughness is, is one of the, you know, one of the things that gets you to the end. But it's, uh, yeah, so that's, and that first year we had no proof of concept, just an idea. And, and I can tell you there was not once, there were many times I found myself second guessing the idea, did I hear from the Lord? Is this something I should be doing? My wife is saying, look, I need to actually go and get a full-time job now because you need to pay all, these, all this money back. We've got no income. And it's not easy. you know. The, and all you have to go on is your foundation of how you view everything in the world and how you make decisions and how you decide in which direction you head. And that stuff you might think it happens instinctively, but it happens as a function of the million times you've made small, similar decisions in certain directions and certain ways. And so you are the product of every choice you've ever made. And for me at that moment, I just went back to my faith and I knew, look, I, I really believe the Lord's calling me to do this. I don't know yet why. And I have a better sense now, but I need to see this through and, 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 see it out, you know, and that, that whole year, I mean, we, we took a long time to pay off all our debts. Uh, I mean, as it happened, our partners pulled out. So I ended up with a hundred percent of the ent entity and all the debt. And it turned out that, our, you know, some of our investors, we had just personal mismatched ethics and down the line, we would have probably have bumped heads in a significant way when this thing became significant so, you know, you look back and you realize, wow, actually, that was the best thing that could have happened at the time, man. Yeah, wow, man. I, did, I didn't know all of that. You know, the behind the scenes, you see some stuff, social media, see the website, and I definitely remember seeing it and hearing about it and following it when it was first, the, the idea first came out just because, you know, staying in, somewhat in touch with you. But, you know, what, what made you get, give you the idea to do this for prize money and what kind of criticism did you get? Cause a lot of these races, you know, there's no, there's no prize like the tour divide. It's notorious or it's, it's, it's famous almost for, for just not literally having anything <laughs> prize worthy at the end, some recognition that's about <laughs> it and some pride, but you know, there's no entry fee. There's no real registration other than putting your spot tracker on track leaders. But you know, what, what made you to sure. approach this in a totally different way? Well, so I had – so there's a couple of streams of thought to answer that question. Remember my background now professionally has been Explore in our business where we're taking high-profile people, executives, and teams up mountains around the world, and we are highly critical around the, the demand of these individuals to have an authentic and compelling experience because time is their most – important asset so they're not necessarily too worried about how much they're spending but they want to make sure if they're going to give you a week of their lives they better get something lasting and authentic in return and so professionally there's this 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 need to carve out experiences that tick those boxes at a personal level uh you know i had a uh, i studied uh, a 
sports psychology at university. So I've always been personally obsessed about potential, human potential. And, and obviously I've pushed that in my personal capacity and in, in these ultra endurance mountain bike events. And so I'm doing races like the Tour Divide. I'm doing races like the Freedom Challenge, which is similar to the Tour Divide in South Africa, except it's no GPS navigation. You've got to use one in 50,000 topographic maps. It's in the middle of winter over the high remote mountains of South Africa. If you can't navigate to the map, you're going to get lost for days. And it's super cold, sub-zero temperatures. And so I was coming out of these races having a real sense of, wow, my life has been impacted in a profound way. So much so that I, I, I'm thinking about doing certain things differently. On the other end of the spectrum, I was doing stuff that, uh, you know, normal, so the, I call a normal mountain biking race, like a, what we call a, a, a normal multi-day stage race where you race six, seven hours and you sleep in a small tent, wake up in the morning, new day. They're tough races, but at the end of that, I, I wasn't feeling that same sense of uh, wildness. And so I realized there was an opportunity uh, to create something that had the life-changing elements of something like the Tour Divide. The challenge with the Tour Divide is, of course, who's got three weeks to go and do a bike race? Very few people. And, you know, 20, 21 days on the Tour Divide, you're doing reasonably well. Most guys take four weeks. Who's got that kind of time? And so what's happening is here are these events that are highly niche, but such a small percentage of the population will ever get to experience that life-changing factor because they're so niche. And yet the events that do attract the multitudes just don't have that impact. And so my thinking was gravitating towards a format that lay somewhere in the middle of that continuum that was in a time frame that was doable, hence the five-day format of the manga, but that had the toughness that would genuinely impact people's lives. And, and so that's kind of how the format came about. That's a great point because you're right about the Tour Divide. It's an incredible experience. Things like it are incredible. You know, through hiking is huge here in the States too. There's three big trails and those take average five or six months to do. Who can do that? A very small percentage of people. You know, it takes years and years of planning, saving, and and really intentional work to, to carve that time out if you have a somewhat normal life. And so it takes people going through these big transitions to carve out that time. And so in an effort to um, get more people involved and have that same, you know, that same passion and, and feelings that you get out there for weeks at a time, that's a, that's a really great idea. And that's a really great cause to be going after. And you mentioned a few times that, that your wife was telling you, you know, it's, it's, it's time to move on to something else, get, get a different job. Was, was the motivation for family life or work-life balance at all a part of that, bringing, bringing that adventure home, essentially? Yeah, so, I mean, a missing piece of the puzzle, you know, to be completely transparent, I'd have to say that maybe six, seven years ago, just as the manga was, the thoughts were forming, I was in, in a season in my faith where I was praying for a different way to go about stuff because at the time I probably would have had Leia. She's now 11, so she would have been maybe three or four. 
Eden, our second daughter, would have just been born. And so there was this growing desire to spend more time with the kids. But here's a fascinating observation when I look back. Our desire follows principal decisions. And it's counterintuitive because we tend to think we make principal decisions following our desire. But I'm not convinced that's the direction for the biggest decisions of our life. And so let me just specifically put that into context. I went to Broad Peak in 2009. Broad Peak is one of the uh, 8,000ers, one of the 14 8,000ers, and it's in Pakistan in the Karakoram. And I led a small team. We were going to hopefully try and make the first South African ascent to Broad Peak. But the real motive to go there was to look at K2. Now, of course, we're all familiar with K2, the second highest uh, 8,000er. K2 lies just next to Broad Peak. In fact, the base camps are just a couple of miles apart. And the real motive was to spend the six, seven weeks obviously trying to climb Broad Peak, but looking across at K2 and looking for a relatively safe line, if such a thing existed, to follow up the, the, the next year and make the first send the first South African team to K2. Leia, my first daughter, was six months old at the time. And we, in seven weeks, saw the mountain maybe five or six times. The weather was just horrendous. And the mountain broad peak was dangerous. It, it uh, you know, there was just constant loose snow. A lot of it was un, uh, sort of mixed climbing but unroped. The Taliban had just started their nonsense on the borders, and so some of the bigger expeditions had cancelled their big guiding trips. And, of course, they were the guys that were going to put the fixed ropes in place, and small little outfits like us were going to pay a fee and contribute and then use their fixed ropes. No fixed ropes on the mountain. Our, our high-altitude uh, porter refuses to climb until they fix stroke. So we're climbing up and down broad peaks, simul climbing, uh, soloing, and you know it's all sort of 50, 55 degree hard, good neve on the best of days. But most of the time it's tr miserable, soft snow. It was just a dangerous time, and I really got a sense at, at towards the end of that that I need to pull the plug. That I'm out on a limia, and my risk profile is changing. And it was really the first time in my life that I thought about risk in a completely different way. And I, and I got home and I knew that high altitude, big mountains for me and the prospect of ever going to maybe climb K2 were over, certainly for this life. And it was a sobering time. And I remember for the next few months thinking, how am I going to be able to live like this? Because the desire is so great. And yet, once I had made the principal decision and I'd actually articulated that and I thought it through that I'm now changing my risk profile. I'm no longer making myself eligible for these big expeditions. Guess what happened? The desire suddenly decreased. And so we tend to think you've got to wait for the day that your desire starts shifting towards something else and then you make the principal decision. No, I believe you make that principal decision because it's the right thing to do in spite of a lack of desire and the desire follows proportionately. And so what I found now in the last few years is suddenly an increased desire to spend more time at home, which I never thought I would have, and a decreased desire to spend time on big expeditions. And that was kind of the sort of feeding ground of my soul, so to speak, 
that would then lead to prayers around, okay, I need a new idea. And so the manga was born. And I, and I hope that's all kind of making sense as to how the sort of manga evolved out of this the state of internally of me making these principal decisions and then seeing a shift in desire and seeing a, a totally new business grow. Thank you for sharing that, Alex. That's that's very insightful and, and, and a great lesson to learn. You know, I, I think a lot of folks today, myself included, we, we rely too much on our feelings and desires and let that determine what we're doing rather than the other way around and, and allowing those feelings and desires to follow the right decision, essentially. Um, that's totally applicable. And I, and I can't tell you how, from how many new parents I, I hear that and feel that, myself included. Um, you know, I went doing some uh, some trips not long after my son was born last summer and just felt, yeah, that desire to be home that I never thought I'd have. And I can only imagine that with going on four children like yourself, that that increases even more. And uh, that desire to be around them doing what you would consider to be maybe mundane before is now the greatest thrill to you. And uh, that's that's very fascinating, very insightful. And so I, I assume that the, the bike packing and the bike touring expeditions did not give you that sense of, uh, you know, that, that unnecessary danger that mountaineering did. No, you know, I, and it's funny when you started talking about that, there was a hint in the way you were talking about it that the, the racing days for me are over. But actually, I, I like to think I've got two more years. I think 50 is two my – uh, and that's <laughs> – <laughs> so you know I'm, I'm not sure if Matthew's going to put on the Tour Divide this year I'm waiting to hear from him I think he's going to struggle but I think next year's going to be busy and I'd love to go back and give it one more one more go but yes yeah, so I you know in in the bikepacking strangely enough the ultra endurance racing I just found a strange place that I felt comfortable and also where I could push myself like I've never been able to. And, you know, look, I mean, when you're on the shop end on the Tour Divide and you're a biggish guy, I'm not a lightweight like some of these youngsters. No, uh, you're, you're, you know, you're a big guy. I mean, that's a, it's, a, it's a lot of body to move, you know. Oh, I mean, I tell you, I get uh, I get blisters. Look, I also think years of going to these cold places has left my body just a bit more beaten, but my feet take strain. You know, by the time I get to day 10 on the Tour Divide, I am, there isn't a, an inch of my body that's not in pain. And my entire existence is shifting around trying to find that one inch for the briefest of moments. But I, I realized that it's, you know, I think w there's a season for everything in our life. And when you, when you're so conscious of the season and the changing of seasons, you want to squeeze the most that you can out of the season you're in because you know you will never have that season again. It'll be a different season and not necessarily any less challenging or less thrilling or less fulfilling, but it'll be a different season. The season we're in now is is the only season we'll get like us and, and we got to just squeeze the most out of it. And that's why I keep going back to those bike races because I think I've still got maybe two years in the season and then uh, I think that window is going to get shut by some of the youngsters coming out of uh, Colorado, eh? <laughs> it ain't gonna be me but uh yeah there's a lot around here definitely that are uh 
that are going to be pushing the envelope in a lot of ways. Um, so it's exciting to see and exciting to, you know, be right here yeah. in my backyard. But, uh, man, that is, that is really, really fascinating stuff. So, you know, with your identity, you know, shifting around being, being the person doing these things, you, you know, what, what have you learned and what can you share, uh, on top of everything you have about, you know, the changing of the seasons and the changing of your identity and how to approach, these new seasons and, and the challenges they face, because I, I believe there is, you know, to, a way to get those same feelings, um, with each changing season, even though they might not look, uh, I don't know, as exciting on the outside to people. Yeah. You know, it's a great question. I think, I think the big challenge for most people is that we get our identity from what we do and how well we do it. And what we have to show that we've done it well. And so the minute that stuff starts diminishing, we, we cannot but help feel that there's something wrong with who we are. And the truth is our identity is, is, is in God. You know, he's kind of made us in his image. Our identity is fixed. It's rock solid. It's in the image of a creator. It's filled with the DNA of stuff that invents, that creates, that changes. And so when your identity is fixed on him and you realize just who you are, it's it's largely immaterial what happens. And I don't want to diminish the the context of our challenges at the moment because I think they're significant. But our identity in him is insignificant of the stuff that's going on around us. And don't be shy to let something go and start something new. I mean, I, I find myself... I want to use the term midlife crisis, but it's a crisis of confidence only because we question who we are and whether we have the capacity to do this new thing that we know nothing about. And so, you know, my, my advice and my, my cry is don't question capacity because in him our capacity is unlimited, but be willing to maybe do something different. I think the notion of old careers and setting your ways that's changing. The, the new world is, is highly flexible. It's flux. It's constantly changing. And I think we need to be willing to adapt. We need to be willing to reinvent ourselves and learn something new and be happy to fail. You know, failure is part of this new direction. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tough time, but see it as an opportunity to maybe learn and discover something new or a new direction. And you never know. You might just be surprised. Absolutely. I 100% agree. And I, and I think that, I think a lot of us find something we're passionate about early on, like you did with mountaineering. And, and you think that's the only thing you can do when it's time to change. And I often think, you know, what, what's the chance that you found your life's biggest passion at 20 something? You know what I mean? There's a million things out there. You haven't seen everything yet. You never know. You might be extremely passionate about, I don't know, you know, art or, 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 or golfing. I don't, it could be a million things. You just haven't tried it yet. So that's definitely something I've gone through with bike touring and packing is like, you know, I, there's so much I still haven't done. If my body isn't allowing me to do this, yeah. I, there's a billion other things that I could try than do that people find extremely passion, uh, an extreme passion for every day. So that's a, that's a great reflection. Uh, I'd love to ask you a handful of rapid fire questions. They're not, you don't have to answer, not one word answers, but just a sentence or two, or just a quick thought sure. about. 
and uh, then we can wrap it up and and uh, let you get on get on with your day. Um, Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, rapid fire question number one: What would you say is your proudest achievement outside of family and uh, outside of adventure? Outside of family and outside of adventure, that's pretty much my that's pretty entire much life. Pretty everything, but... huh? <laughs> I don't know if you have a particular uh, drawing of a dog that you're proud of or, you know, something random. No. Yeah, I'd say my collection of stamps from the British colony in northern Nigeria, which existed from 1900 to 1914. I've been collecting stamps from there for about 40 years now. Really? Yeah. Oh, my. That's going to be the title of this episode. Alex Harris, stamp collector. <laughs> have, have you got them all? I mean, I don't know if there's a count to it, but you got to be close well, 40 it, years of collecting. Yeah, there's 52 stamps. I've got 51 of them. Uh, the one I miss is a 25-pound stamp issued for a liquor license. Uh, that's exceptionally rare. I mean, there's only nine known examples in the world, and they all sit in private collections. So, But you know what? I, I, I'm not giving up hope yet. Eh? Hey, that sounds like another adventure to me. <laughs> so so what would you say your biggest goal uh that's not yet achieved maybe it's that 50 second stamp but maybe it's something else uh in in sort of the personal ambitions space you asking yes yeah i think it would be to look i still personally i i, I still want to race and do a sub 10 freedom challenge and i still think i have potentially a a two-week or 14-day tour divide in me uh on a personal level on a business level i'd like to create a a global series six mangas around the world six different continents every two months i think it would be insane oh yeah that sounds exciting wow so so do you have any particular daily habits that you've stick to for years or something you're doing now that helps you yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I try and have quiet time, uh, and obviously that means different things for different people. Some people talk about it as meditation, but I just try and spend some, and, and I try and do it more often in the morning, but when you've got an upturned lifestyle, uh, it's it's not always in the morning, but I try and spend some of my time just reading some of the Word in the Bible, just trying to hear from God, seeing uh, you know, getting a, a sort of a, a macro sense spiritually. This is the season. This is the key things. Where am I heading to? Uh, I try and read a bit every day. Um, but otherwise, you know, it's it's uh, other than that sort of, and and that's obviously not any of the physical stuff, you know, because I think all of that comes second. But for me, it's really just probably the single most important thing is is the quiet time. You know, just carving out a piece of the day where I can try and turn down the volume of the world and just, you know, hear what the Lord's saying and hear what my, my heart is saying. Where are we going to? Mm. So what what would you say you're most curious about right now outside of work and family? Sure. Mm. What am I most curious about? I think our, our desire... For experience, when we come out of this COVID nineteen, how how will our our behaviours have changed? You know, people talk about behavioural specialists and all of these guys, gurus, talk about 
habit forming takes a minimum of tw- I mean the, the time period varies around but you know a lot of guys talk around a 21 day period whatever it is lockdown for most people around the world now has certainly given them that opportunity and it's going to be fascinating I'm curious to see what good behaviors and poor behaviors have formed due to COVID you know that's going to be fascinating that is I didn't think about that people have had the opportunity to form some good or bad habits right now and from everyone I've talked to, it's definitely a mixture of the two. And even in my own personal life, it's a mixture of two, you know, maybe sleeping in a little later than usual and, uh, but, but also being more active and more reflective in a lot of ways. So it's, it's a strange balance between the two. That is fascinating. So, you know, as my last question, you know, where can people find out more about you and more about what you're doing? Look, I don't personally, and I've always been really bad at pushing my own brand. You know, I've just never felt like uh, that's the, the thing I should be doing. So, I mean, I don't even spend time on my Facebook page a lot. Uh, my, you know, my personal website, I closed down. But the best place is really just to go to our Facebook page for Explore or the Facebook page for the Munger, you know. So the, the Munger uh, for the, the, you know, the mountain bike race. And then, and you know, that's kind of where most of the nitty gritty stuff is. Uh, but they're welcome to send me an email, alex at the manga.com. Um, or I explore Facebook page, they can see what stuff. Look, there's obviously nothing happening for the next few months. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'd say probably go to the manga Facebook page. And if they want to engage, uh, ask some questions, they can, they're welcome to send me an email, alex at the manga.com. Fantastic. Well, Alex, I, I appreciate you taking time out of your your life with time with your family i know that's precious and uh you know i i, I wish you and your family well through this time and, and the best of luck with the manga i know there's a trail racing series and maybe we can get a team do my day job get them over there and maybe compete once all this passes <laughs> that'd be fun <laughs> well it's been a pleasure and a privilege thanks for having me mason all right yes sir cheers man bye first of all thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.